The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. The United States has a long tradition of direct democracy through referendums, dating back to the early years of the Republic. Nearly every state today has some form of referendums or ballot initiatives. Yet, the United States has never had a national referendum. John Matsusaka points out that from a comparative perspective, this is unusual. Nearly all other democracies have held national referendums, and many have made them a regular part of their political process. Matsusaka emphasizes tradition should not be an obstacle. He writes, American democracy is not a static system created by the founders, but a work in progress, an evolving set of practices that each generation has updated, largely by extending the scope of popular participation. My guest today is John Matsusaka. He is the Charles F. Sexton Chair in American Enterprise at the University of Southern California and the author of Let the People Rule, How Direct Democracy Can Meet the Populist Challenge. We share an optimistic conversation about the possibilities for direct democracy. There's a little bit of talk about Brexit and a few other countries like Switzerland are mentioned, but we mainly focus on the United States. John thinks the time is past due to introduce direct democracy on the national level. He writes in his book, Although the founders got some things wrong, they got many things right. We would like to know if omitting direct democracy was one of the things they got right or one of their mistakes. This is the challenge our conversation poses. Is direct democracy something the founders overlooked or is it too radical to introduce at the national level? This is the central question here in my conversation with John Matsusaka. John, welcome to uh, the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for having me here, Justin. All right. Well, the book is great. I really enjoyed uh, reading uh, your book, uh, Let the People Rule. Um, there's a. I, I want to jump right in. You mentioned in the preface that you have researched direct democracy for over 30 years. But this does not read like somebody who has gotten bored with their research. You sound really passionate. Can you tell just a little bit about what drew you to this field and what excites you about direct democracy? Well, that's a great question. I, and I haven't been asked that one before, but I, I've started working on this really in graduate school way back in the, in the late 1980s. Um, it's it's hard to know what why you got interested in what you got interested in life. You you only time goes by and you look back and 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 you uh, you try to figure it out. But but I, I realize over time that what what really has been a fundamental interest to me. I'm I'm very interested in how you know human societies make their collective decisions. Uh, I guess I I always even when I was a kid I 
if I, if I was reading science fiction, I like to read Foundation or something by, by Asimov. So I was in, always interested in how, you know, human societies, you know, go about their business. And, and this big question, one of the things we, we really have to do and one of the things that's been great for us, uh, why we've been able to do so well is because we are, we're able to cooperate. We're able to come together and make collective decisions and, and move forward as a group. And so direct democracy is, is democracy in general, but direct democracy in, in particular has been a part of that. And I grew up in the state of Washington as well, where it, where it was common to um, for people to vote on on issues, and I remember when I was going to graduate school in Chicago, I started to read about it, and I and I realized that there were many places in the country where people thought it was crazy that people should never vote on issues, and I was just struck by that because I was when I grew up, it was like, of course you should vote on issues. How, how would anybody not think that? And so that opened my mind to the fact that there's a much broader set of views out out there, and I've just 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 been intrigued by it uh, since then. Uh, the more the more recent thing is, I think, like many people, I've 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 looked at our democracy, and I've, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm in some sense I'm a proud American. I'm, I'm I think we're the, you know, we're, we're the pioneer in democracy. We show the world that people can govern themselves. But I've become concerned as well at, at many aspects of democracy, as I think m many of us are. And I've been thinking about why is that, and our and our things we can do to make it better. And so, so that really kind of led to, to this book because I think there was, I really did feel there was a dimension of the discussion that wasn't really being brought to the surface there. So I, I felt like let's let's write the book and put it out there for, for public consideration. Okay, now I, I wanna kind of jump around. I wanna jump to the end of the book to be honest with you because one of the things that I find when I talk to people about direct democracy is some people who are opponents will create a straw man for direct democracy and pigeonhole you so that you, you're defending every single type of form a direct democracy saying, oh, well, you want the people to vote on everything. And then other people, um, it, you know, there's, you can kind of just work your way out going, well, that's not really a good use of direct democracy. You do a really good job of explaining what you think of as the role for direct democracy and what you think the role is for representative democracy. Can, can we kind of get that out of the way, but just kind of explain what your ideal balance is between the two and what the role is for each of those. So this is a great question. And there is a, a tendency to, to talk about ex extremes here. I, in some ways, one of the overarching messages of the, of, of the book is that if we look at the United States, we don't want to have people vote on every issue. That no, no, nobody wants to have a town meeting every time any any decision wants to get made. So, so the really question is, is well, how much do, do we want to do? What, what I think is the most striking fact about the United States at the national level is, is that we aren't having a discussion about, well, how much should we do? Because we have zero. We have literally zero. And it seems to me that it's, it's hard to believe that zero is the right answer. I don't know if it's 10% or 5% or 20, but zero is really, is really a strange thing. And it's historically not what, not what, other, other, not what the rest of this country does, not what other places do. Uh, so, so, so part of the book is, is just to maybe say, you know, we can argue, and there's really good arguments about how much we want to do and what issues we want to vote on. But to say we should never vote on any other issues is very odd. So what, issue sh what, what should we do? I, I actually think, and I argue in the book that, first of all, democ direct democracy probably ought to be a fallback option for, for the most part. Uh, most people uh, do not want to uh, be engaged in, in the day-to-day -day business of, of government. There's, there's reasons we have specialization in the economy. Some, some people's job is to design computer games. Some people's job is to... Uh, you know, deliver Amazon packages. Some people's job is to make laws. Okay, so I think ordinary ordinary people, if they want to make laws, they'll 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 run for office or something. And so I think by and large that people don't want to make all the laws. 
what what direct democracy is is really a, it's a it's it's in some sense a fallback for one thing. Um, there's some issues where for one reason or other the people we elect don't seem to want to take the actions that 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 the majority wants them to do. So that's that's the first one. And then there are some other really broad issues I would suggest that implicate our values and our our society as a whole to the extent that they ought to be collectively decided. And let me just give two examples without going into so much detail, just two, just two examples. In in the first category, things that maybe legislators can't be can't be trusted or might have a conflict of interest, there might be issues like term limits or having nonpartisan redistricting or open primaries. These are things that the established parties don't don't like uh, for I think kind of obvious reasons that it threatens their it threatens their power uh, and their careers and so forth. So they're not going to do what the overwhelming majority of people generally want to do. So those are some issues where we don't really think the representative process can can necessarily work. Those are, I think, obvious examples. So it's nice in situations like that for the people to have a channel where where they can weigh in. The other one is is very big issues. Um, I suspect we we might end up talking in a few minutes about about Brexit, um, because that was a, a big issue where where the UK had to make a very big decision about how much it wanted to integrate with 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 the rest of Europe. Um, that's more than about trade. I mean, that has all kinds of of implications about how about, about voting rights. Actually, it has a whole bunch of things, and and one can well imagine that on those issues, which really get to the core of who a group of people are as a community, it seems like entirely appropriate that those issues ought to be decided by the community collectively. And indeed, European nations have taken about there have been about 50, 50 votes on European integration issues across Europe so so far. So Brexit is one that didn't work w well, I, I would say, for a variety of reasons. But I think the principle is is correct that there's some issues that are so important and and, and impact us all that that we probably ought to decide them collectively. You know, I thought it was interesting in the book when you, you wrote that the United States has never held a national vote on an issue is a strange anomaly. I, to be honest with you, I never really thought about it because I think of direct democracy as, um, or at least referendums as being a part of the United States system because it's a part of so many states and uh, school board referendums and stuff like that. It feels like it already is. But uh, you really kind of drove that point home that on a national level, that's never really been part of it. Um, constitutional issues in particular, you kind of stress the value positions. Uh, a lot of countries, when they're making major constitutional changes, oftentimes bring those to the voters. We have a much more complex system. And you even write about that, how the constitutions become ossified because of how complicated it is when if the founders had considered actually just saying, hey, maybe we just do a national referendum, maybe we do statewide referendums to pass these constitutional issues, it'd be a lot easier to kind of pass some of those. Yeah, part of what I'm hoping to do is, uh, I mean, I wrote the book, I think the book should be hopefully of interest to people who aren't Americans, but I, I did especially want to, want to reach out to Americans because I think that we we have a blind spot sometimes because we're so proud of what we do that we, we think that we, we don't kind of know that um, what's going on in the rest of the world. And so the idea of voting on national referendums is a, is a perfect example where essentially everybody else in the world does this now. Uh, and they've been doing it for a while. There, I think there's maybe two or maybe three other nation democracies that have never taken national votes. Everybody does it, but the U.S. Uh, and you know, there's reasons that we haven't done it. But but I think it it it's really important. I think for people to look and recognize we're we're behind the curve in in some sense. We we were the per, we were the people that you know, or our forefathers uh, were the people that sort of trailblazed this whole concept 
Uh, but we built a constitution really 250 years ago. Remember, it, it's just, it, it's, it's amazing to think of how long ago that, what that world was like in 17, you know, 1780s there, you know, there was no technology, it was pre-industrial age and they built a constitution which has served extremely well. Um, but they were very nervous because they were the first ones that had the notion that people could govern themselves and even pick their own representatives. So they picked kind of a not very democratic system compared to what people would, would do now, because as time went by, people realized, you know, you can trust the people. They actually do, do, do pretty well. But we kind of got stuck in that, in that old model. And so, so part of what, what I'm trying to suggest in the book is that, is that sort of maybe to open the lens a little wider for American readers and to realize we're, we're kind of out of step right, right now. Uh, we're, not, we're not voting on national issues. Everybody else does it. We do it at the state and local level all the time. And I think most Americans would find it strange not to. Uh, for example, 49 of 50 states require voters to approve constitutional amendments. And I think if you went to most Americans and you said, here's an alternate, here's an alternate system. The legislature can amend constitutions without any consent of the people. What do you think of that idea? My guess is most people would say, well, that's crazy. Uh, but, but, but that's the federal government right now. The people have no, have no say, would have no say in constitutional amendments. They have no say in laws. And so, and so I think we, 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 there's a danger that we get a little bit into this habit of thinking because we've been doing it for so long, we think it makes sense. But I, I think our intuitions really run much toward the notion of voting on, on things. We vote on school board elections. We vote, in, we vote in cities. We vote in counties. We vote in states. The only place we don't vote, the only place is at the national level where we do this crazy thing where we're doing zero. Not, not crazy, but, but I mean, this very ex- extreme thing where we do zero. Let's touch on Brexit. You, know, you, you already brought that up. I think it's a good time to kind of um, discuss that. I, I thought a lot about Brexit in terms of um, ways that it wasn't done right. And I think you and I see, see alike on, on a lot of that, to be honest with you. Um, can, can you talk, explain a little bit about what characteristics, like, Explain how Brexit was direct democracy done wrong, and then kind of use that as an opportunity to explain what kind of characteristics or steps you feel are necessary for direct democracy to actually succeed. So, so Brexit, the principle of Brexit was, was good, and I think time-tested. Uh, European nations have been voting on whether, whether and how much to integrate for a long time. The UK, in fact, took a vote itself in 1975 on whether to join the, the, what was then essentially called the common market, and they, and, they said, and they said they would. So it was quite helpful for them. They were having a raging debate. They took a vote. They said, we want to do it, and it put the issue to rest for a generation or, or more. Uh, so I think that's, the concept is, is perfectly good. What happened in the UK is, is, is the prime minister uh, didn't really want to exit. Uh, uh, and so he put this measure on the ballot uh, to... to in some sense, to put the issue the issue to rest, uh, but he had a complicated set of motives. One of which was to give him negotiating power with 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 the European Union. So so it, it appears uh, from what he said and what other people have said is that is that he was hoping he would he would put this out there uh, as a threat to the European Union. Then he would go to the European Union. He would get concessions, and he would come back, and the voters would then would then turn it down and choose to stay in the in in the European Union. That it, it looks like it looks like that that's what he what he had in mind. I, so, I read his book for the record, and and that's more or less the case. It was really interesting how Cameron um, weaponized direct democracy um, by, I mean, he brought up the Scottish referendum before that. They gave him confidence to bring right. up right. Brexit. And what's interesting about the Scottish referendum is it had enormous repercussions. The BES, the British Election Study, um, they uh, they wrote a book recently called like electoral shocks this past year, and one of their 
a few of them was obviously Brexit and obviously the Scottish referendum. Scottish referendum was incredibly impactful because it completely undermined labor within the entire, within Scotland and allowed the conservative party to have a foothold. So I think David Cameron got overly, um, overly optimistic of what he was doing. And there's uh, on the face of it, there's nothing actually wrong about doing the Scottish referendum. Cause if they would have voted, yes, he would have ended up honoring that. Um, you know, and to be fair, he did honor Brexit by moving forward on it. Um, but like you said, I mean, there's, um, it was very complicated. He, he was a, he was a Euroskeptic trying to defend the European union after he'd been spending all this time trashing it. Right. It just didn't feel like he was the right guy to have the credibility to really steer that through. Right. Right. So he went and he didn't really get what he thought he would get out of them. And he, he misjudged, uh, we know with hindsight, you know, he misjudged the the temper of, of, of his electorate as well. But I think the fact that he wasn't, he, he, he assumed that this this was a bargaining chip, not a real decision. And so I think that led to some choices in the design of it, which were quite unfortunate. And the most unfortunate one was that the the, the referendum asked a very simple question, which was essentially, do you, do you want the UK to, to, stay, to stay in the European Union or not? And as we learned afterwards, you, you, it's not as simple as, you know, should I stay or should I go? There's a lot of different varieties of staying and going in there. And it turns out that what you think about this issue might depend on on which exact way of exit you you want to go. So I, I you know your your listeners probably don't want to go into you know, hard exit and soft exit and so forth. But there was a there was a whole bunch of stuff that that weren't that weren't specified. And so and so that had a whole bunch of problems. Um, it meant first of all for the voters they didn't exactly know what they were voting for. When, when I say I want to leave, what what is that? What what exactly does that mean? Which of these various options uh, are, are are on the table? And it also presented a really bad polit- uh, problem for the politicians afterwards who had to deal with this outcome. Now, he resigned right after the election. He left it to, to, to the other people. But they had to say, well, what did the people actually vote for? What do they actually want? We know they want to exit, but which form of exit? And they had to figure this out. And then they spent three years. I don't think many of them said we're, we're not going to exit. They, they got the sense of the people and they seemed, they seemed entirely willing to respect that. But they were arguing about what form that exit should take. So I, I think one of the clear messages here uh, and this is the way that U.S. states and cities do much better on that, is they say what the law actually is that you're voting on. Uh, I think asking people aspirational questions uh, is, 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 is very dangerous. It, it would have been better if he would have, in some ways, what he, what he, would have, what he should have done is gone and negotiated an, an exit agreement with the EU and then put it to the voters and say, do you want to exit under these terms? And there was, I, I think- some, there was actually some proposals to do that. Um, yeah. And he, he, he declined them. He, I think he kind of thought that he did that, but in the reverse way, like, because he went negotiated terms with the EU. And I think he thought the people were voting yes on the new terms of the EU, just didn't consider fully the possibility of what it exactly meant for them to say no, because they weren't voting down the new negotiated. They were voting down the whole concept of the EU entirely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I, I, I always hesitate to get in people's minds because who knows who knows what 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 was going on and, and what he actually thought. But that sounds entirely plausible to me that maybe he thought they were they would understand it to be the deal he, he had negotiated. I'm not sure that's what they thought, uh, as, as you just hinted at. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, I, I suspect probably human beings being what they are, they probably went in. I suspect different people thought different things. Based on his book, I think that's what David Cameron thought. I, I think you're right that I don't think that's what the voters thought. 
Right. Um, (laughs) The the other thing which I think should be given a a lot of thought uh, is that if you're if you're voting on something which is really, really significant and a really big change of the status quo, some thought should be given to the issue of perhaps requiring a supermajority or, you know, say 60 percent have to approve instead of that got 51.5 percent or um, say, say 60% or say you have to do it two two elections in a row. So some states, some states do, do things like that for a constitutional amendment to occur. And that just immunizes you against the chances that there's, there's kind of fluctuating events that might drive a few percent at the margins here. And it doesn't really reflect the reason, the reason uh, view, view of the people. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm, ner- I'm a little hesitant to endorse that because it is a bit anti-majoritarian to say that, you know, it, it takes a supermajority to move forward. But but you can argue that in some major, major types of decisions, um, it, it might be useful. It might be useful to do that. And I have a quote from from Thomas Jefferson, who actually yeah. talked about, you know, you shouldn't base major decisions on slender majorities. Uh, and I because I think that does get you in, into trouble because people don't really know. I, I think people are very good at saying. Um, at contesting an issue. And if they lost, they say, I lost. Uh, I'm in the minority and let's move forward. I, I accept that. People are very good at that. What they're not very good at is if it looks like just um, chance events swung it one way, then they want to revote it. They want to redo it because they think they'll get a better outcome if they go again. And that's what's destabilizing for democracy. Do you feel, though, that people are naturally contrarian when it comes to initiatives? Though you noted that I think it was only 40% of initiatives have passed in the United States. And looking at a country like Switzerland, um, I looked, the, the numbers are even worse. Uh, Matt uh, Kavortrup uh, wrote in uh, Journal of Democracy a few years ago that in Switzerland, only 9% of the 68 initiatives held from like 1880 to, uh, I think it was uh, 2013, or no, uh, 1980, I think. And then 12% of the 109 votes held since have passed. I mean, that's just incredibly slender percents. Obviously, Switzerland has very different rules than other countries do, but it's it's not like a majority of initiatives or, or referendums, period, necessarily pass. Yeah. So one thing that's useful for people who are listening to to keep in mind is that there's different flavors of direct democracy because we're we're we're, we're touching on that here. Um, the ones which we call it initiatives get a lot of attention, and those are ones that citizens actually propose the laws themselves. They go collect signatures. Uh, their marijuana legalization has been a, a, a recent example. There's a whole bunch of other things. In fact, most things that people vote on are not initiatives. What's confusing is that the words that people use for these other things uh, are not standardized. I'm going to call them referendums here. Sometimes people call them plebiscites. Uh, they have all kinds of, of of different names, but Brexit was 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 in that other category. It was put on the government. It was put on the ballot by the by the government. Most of the things when people go in on on November three to vote, they're going to be voting on propositions. Most of the things they'll be voting on are not initiatives. They're things that the that the legislature or a commission or somebody else put on the ballot. Those things, those referendum things, most of those passed by 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 large numbers. They're fairly uncontroversial. Um, constitutional amendments and so forth. The ones that are most controversial are the initiatives, as you just said, of which in the United States, about 40% of the state level proposals pass. Uh, I think there's a natural reason for that is that the initiative is designed to allow, um, to allow individuals and groups who feel they, they can't get any, they can't get anybody to listen to them to put their issue before the public. And so things that are obviously good, any, any sensible legislature will do it. Right. The stuff they won't do are things that are kind of seem kind of out there on the fringes or or for some self-interested reason they they don't want to do. And so you're inevitably going to see a bunch of kind of maybe kind of crackpot or crazy ideas being floated out there and the voters, the voters saying no to them. 
what's what's somewhat remarkable to me is that 40% 40% is actually a lot when you think about it these are things that the, the majority of people say they want to do and the legislature somehow didn't recognize that and do that so so that to me is is a bit surprising as well that there's so many things the legislatures are failing to pick up on that the voters would like to do uh, something i thought was interesting in your book was you talked about regarding this exact topic was about how uh, legislative congruence the way that the, the difference between how legislators vote compared to their constituents vote on literally the same issue when it's put on the ballot. Um, that, that really surprised me, the numbers that you put up. What were the numbers exactly? Or clo- what were your finding? Yeah, so, so there's, there's been a lot of, of very kind of rigorous statistical research in social science right now trying to, trying to quantify representation. And, you know, the basic question is, is how often do our representatives vote uh, according to what we want? And, and that's a tricky, that's a tricky thing to, to, it turns out to be a tricky thing to measure because we often don't have, we don't have public opinion on exactly the things people vote on. We have public opinion on, on similar things, but, but that may not be the same. But, but so, so I, I have a study and some stuff that I talk about in my book, um, which shows that, the, you know, the, the amount of congruence between what legislators do, even when we have good information, is, is maybe about two thirds or so. Um, so there's quite a few issues where even though the voters have clearly stated majority opinions, the legislatures don't, don't, don't follow those. So, you know, I don't know if this is glass half empty or glass half full. I, I don't <laughs> Clearly, legislators care about what voters what voters think, and they're 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 they want to do what people uh, what people would like by and large. But there's a lot of instances where they don't do things that it's pretty clear they know their constituents would like to have a different course of action, and and, and they don't take it. And and that's one of the stresses in our democracy right now, I think. Yeah, and of course, these are issues that are unique because they're issues that people thought needed to get on the ballot, or that legislators thought needed to go before the people for um, probably for these very reasons that people thought that uh, the people might feel differently than the legislators feel. So I, I don't think that this is necessarily saying that legislators always vote, or I mean, vote only two thirds of the time the way their constituents want. I right. think it's these specific type of issues that are brought up before the voters. Really, really important point, because the study I was just referring to was looking at issues that were came up to referendums and so forth. So clearly on most bread and butter issues, you know, should murder be illegal and stuff, there's 100% congruence there. The legislatures do what their constituents want. It's only some of these more visible issues where you see the, the breakdown occur. There's a topic, a debate about whether or not direct democracy is less tolerant of minority rights. And, and to be honest with you, I even had some scholars on um, head on Joshua Dick and Edward Lasher. And that was a point that they made. Now they were talking specifically about initiative referendums. We were only talking about initiatives. We weren't talking about um, all referendums, but I found it interesting because um, in the state of Florida, which is an important battleground state with 27 electoral votes. So it's one of the most important States in this upcoming uh, 2020 election. Um, they passed a uh, they passed an amendment to the Constitution to allow uh, ex felons to be able to regain the right to vote, um, which potentially could have enormous implications to be able to shift that state a little bit to the left. There's tons of studies that say that that disproportionately affects minorities. It was fascinating to me because it was a case of direct democracy actually upholding and protecting or expanding minority rights. And yet it was the legislature that after that passed put in requirements that were so onerous that it seems as if only 
exceptionally rich white collar criminals, ex-felons are going to be the ones that actually uh, are able to vote afterwards. Do you have any thoughts in terms of that? Or, or do you have any, any background that you want to talk about that? Or, or even just in terms of direct democracy's impact on minority rights as a whole? Yeah, I think it's really, it's great you brought up that issue because I think that's an issue that people are um, reasonably um, concerned about as you think about, about you know, how much direct democracy do, do you want to do? What, is that, what does that mean for minority rights? And I think we have pretty good evidence at this point that direct democracy does tend to push us in a more majoritarian um, direction. And, you know, one of the, one of the really central questions in democratic design, people talk about building constitutions and building democracy is, is, is how do you empower the majority? Because that's what you have to do at some level, but not, but still put in protections So the majorities don't use their powers in tyrannous ways. Um, so, so that's, you know, even it, going back to the start of the United States, that was a central, a central concern. The minorities they were concerned about then are very different than the ones we were concerned about now. They were afraid that the majorities that the minority they were trying to protect was 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 people that had property because they were they were worried that you let these unproperty people uh, have voting rights they'll extract all the property from from the rich and that turned out not actually not not to happen, um, but but this is a really a really central issue. It's one I, I have a whole chapter on this in my book, and and you know to be completely frank, I think this is an area where where we have the least compelling e- evidence about this, um, and it, it's not for lack of attention, but I think there's a. a what I try to do is accurately summarize what I think we know, but it's it's such a um, such a, a, a perhaps politicized area that I, I think, unfortunately, a fair amount of the research the, the researchers are, are kind of assuming their conclusions rather than rather rather than, than following them. So the, the the core problem is this: you can look at you can look back through the history of ballot propositions and you can find examples that were not friendly to minority rights. You can also look through ballot propositions and find some that were friendly to minority rights. So like you just mentioned, um, felon enfranchisement in Florida, but you can find in early 20th century voters approving uh, women's suffrage before the U.S. Constitution was amended to, to allow it. So, so you can find instances of, of both. Um, so, so, the question is, what, so the question is, how do you go from, from anecdotes to, to, to patterns? And it's really important because because the truth is that any type of democracy is going to is going to have that pattern. Even if you had no direct democracy, if we had a, just a pure representative democracy, we just looked at legislators, we'd see the same thing. We would see sometimes they're going to pass laws that are that are helpful to minorities. Sometimes we're going to see them tyrannize minorities. Um, same thing with courts. You're going to see courts make good and bad decisions. So what you what you really want to know is is not is there a risk to minorities from direct democracy because there is. There's a, but, but we have to recognize there's a risk to minorities from any form of democracy. The question is, is direct democracy making it worse or is it even making it materially worse? Um, and that, that's ultimately a comparative question. So it, it really isn't, and I try to stress this in the book, it really isn't good enough to say, yeah, look, there's, there's an anti-minority law that happened here because we can, get, we can do the same exercise and look at our, our representative institutions and our courts and they failed us catastrophically throughout our, our history. It was majorities that disenfranchised uh, black, black voters uh, in the South for a hundred years. Uh, it, it was the majorities that um, interned Japanese during World War II and the courts that, that supported that. And so, so nobody's pure here. Uh, it, it, and this isn't, this isn't to, I mean, I don't, obviously I don't like any of these, in, any of these decisions, but I don't think we'll say we want to throw out 
legislators because they made some of these horrible decisions. I think the thing is, we, 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 what we go is we, we recognize there's this risk and we have a risk in, in direct democracy t- as well. I honestly don't think we have very great evidence suggesting that, direct, that minority rights are more at risk. In fact, if you really look at the broad history of direct democracy, you'll see that they're not usually about minority rights issues. They're more, uh, they're primarily used for government reform types of issues. So, you know, open primaries and term limits and, and so forth have been very popular or for kind of economic and government regulation types of issues like minimum wages or tax rates and so forth. They, they actually don't spend a lot of time on, on minority rights. And so that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about the issue, but I think sometimes some discussions elevated and they think that that's, that, you know, that's going to be the predominance is the majorities are going to spend all their time, you know, attacking and targeting minorities, but that, that's, that's, that's actually a, a, a rare incident. So, so that's a long answer to, to what's a really complicated question, which boils down to, I, I think, I think the jury's a little bit still, still out on that question. Sure. I, well, I mean, I, I'd agree with you that the jury's still out, but to give you a little bit of support um, in terms of that, uh, you, you reference Robert Dahl in the book specifically about how he talks about how the Supreme Court hadn't, it, it was a small blip of the Warren Court is what she described. I remember reading in his preface to a theory of democracy written in 56, which was just literally, or it was written around then, maybe it was 57. It was written um, just a few years after Brown first board. And that was literally the only civil rights case that had really favored minorities for an exceptionally long time. And so he had kind of made the case that the uh, he'd rather trust majorities to make the decision than the Supreme Court on some of those issues for minority rights. And to kind of double down on that, uh, the recent book, The Four Threats by Metzler and Lieberman, um, talks about how Jim Crow kind of got imposed. I've read other sources too about that. And it fascinated me, their, their instance of Wilmington, uh, North Carolina back in 1898, where if you would have had a referendum at that time to say, hey, should we disenfranchise African-Americans, probably would have failed because they had control through, the re, through a fusion party um, in control of, of most legislatures the, uh, and the governorship. It was literally an armed insurrection that kind of flipped the switch in terms of that state. So, um, you know, I, I think there is a case to be made that, hey, yeah, maybe, I, yeah, yeah I, if I can just 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 build on that. I, we need to really look carefully at, at history because we've I think that, that there's been an adoption in the public discourse of a particular narrative that that our rights historically have been have been secured only by the Supreme Court. And, and I think that's I, I think that's that's and as you, you mentioned, you mentioned Robert Dahl, a, a noted a political scientist as well, who, who, who made this point. But many people have observed it who really paid attention to this. No, the Supreme Court has not really been the traditional guarantor of our right. There was a, a small period where they were, uh, but there were also many periods where they, they made decisions that took away that, that took away minority rights. And, and this isn't to criticize and say we shouldn't have courts to protect our rights. I think that's that's a way that we protect it. But I I, I think the notion that that but for the Supreme Court we 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 would be uh, massively tyrannized is 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 is, is inaccurate. The, even the 1960s, I think if people looked very closely at that period, which is the one where the court is more, most recognized for that, and they certainly played a role in expanding rights. But but I think you could well argue that the main sort of the most important things that came out of that were really the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which were congressional acts. Uh, I agree um, entirely. Yeah. I mean, the, the courts, the courts took, took some actions. Uh, it, but I think that's really interesting because that really was an exercise, I would say, of majority rule. 
And in particular, what happened is that you had, uh, in some sense, it, it, you, you some sense because of the checks and balances, the much lauded checks and balances in the national government, uh, Southern legislatures were able to block a minority, a majority of people in the country, most people in the country, you know, we don't know this for sure, but it seems pretty clear that most people in the country would not have supported those, those segregation and uh, regimes and those denials of voting rights in the South. It was only because of the South's really control of this, of the U S Senate that they were able to block those civil rights acts for those civil rights bills for a hundred years. So, so that's an interesting case where, where majorities probably would have protected the minorities better. Than, than, than they actually got from, 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 from the checks and balances system. Uh, so, so I don't want to put, I don't want to take that point too far, but, but I think, but I think there's something to be said in the, the Florida, the Florida felon issue is, uh, is another good example. I think some people want to, I think some people don't give the majority enough credit. Uh, most Americans are decent people who want to do the right thing and want to live in a free society that treats everybody well. I, I firmly believe most Americans do, not, not everybody, unfortunately. Most, most Americans want to do the right thing. So I'm actually a believer in democracy, and I, and I actually believe the, the ultimate guarantor of our rights is, is the majority, uh, is the people. And, and we have to, uh, uh, if we govern ourselves, I think that's probably going to be the safest thing for us in the long run. And to some extent, it kind of comes back to Machiavelli's old point that um, not in the prints, but in the uh, discourses, that the virtue of the people is necessary to kind of maintain, or for him, it was a republic. Yeah. Um, yeah. If the people go south, I mean, you're in, you're in trouble no matter what happens in a democracy. Absolutely. And, and I think we, we need to give ourselves credit. Uh, it's, it's, there's this weird juxtaposition. I mean, we've ran this country for 250 years, more or less with majorities self-governing themselves. And I, and I would, I think it's fair to say we probably created the most prosperous and freest society in, in, in human history. So I think the majority ought to pat themselves on the back. They haven't, they haven't, you know, obviously there's some bad things. I don't want to suggest everything's nirvana. Obviously slavery was there and there was a lot, a lot of bad things, um, but there's a lot of bad things all over the world. And so, you know, at the same time, you, you want to, you know, you want to be self-critical. You also want to give yourself credit for, for the things you, you, you've done well. And I, and I, I, I think our record stacks up pretty well compared to, compared to the alternatives too. Well, let's dive deeper into the courts. There was, um, it, when I interviewed Joshua Dick and Edward Blasher, um, and they talked to, they were much more skeptical about initiative referendums. Like I said before, one of the things that they brought up was that oftentimes initiatives are not, um, are not well vetted, they're not sometimes not well uh, written because anybody can write it. And then you've, and then in some States you just vote on it um, because of that. Uh, a lot of initiatives uh, after they pass into law are oftentimes struck down by the courts. That's bothersome to me because it feels like that would um, double down on losing that, that trust you know, because the people literally would have made a decision and then the courts um, courts rule against it because the law wasn't written um, according to the Constitution because it didn't didn't meet legal standards. Um, what steps can be taken to avoid these type of crises of democracy? Well, first of all, I think the courts have an important ro- role to be role to play. Of course. And I, I would say that, you know, we were just talking about minority rights. I, people sometimes too much focus on initiative initiative constitutional amendments. That's just one of the many, many forms. That's the only one that's not subject to judicial review. I think if people want to protect minority rights and they think courts have a role to play it, that's not incompatible with having direct democracy. It just means one particular type is taken off the table. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to have courts in there. And it's good to have somebody looking at, it's it's good to have another 
person looking at whether whether we are 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 violating one of our basic rights if, if we do. So I don't have a problem with well, that. Well, that, that part's true. You don't want to do something that's unconstitutional just because it's through a referendum. I get that. Right. right. But, but the other should part we would be. Should we be having somebody look over it like a review process before it just goes on the ballot? Because it, it feels like if the court says, hey, I know you guys went through the effort, you decided this 80% to 20% yes, but this just doesn't meet constitutional muster, so this is gone. It feels like if the people would have gone through the effort, gotten behind it, gotten excited about it, and then got told no, it doesn't count, that that would lose some of the faith in the process, um, exactly what you've talked about in your book, losing some of that faith. Yeah. Um, are, are there steps that they could do to work around that? I mean, it feels like there could be. So there, there's many things that can be done about that. A lot of times things will be taken off by courts for procedural reasons because they claim that it, it violated procedures. Um, the signatures were not collected in the, in the proper way. Um, it, it, a single, there's something called the single subject rule that gets a lot of attention where many states have a provision that says a ballot proposition may embrace only one subject. So the courts might say, well, actually, that was that was two subjects. Um, yeah. And sometimes that's bogus and sometimes that's fair. Well, but that's yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if anybody listening to this, just, just just if you just think for one minute, what you know, how do you decide what's one subject and in, 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 in two subjects is, is an entirely subjective thing. And, and uh, uh, Rick Hassan, who's a well-noted uh, election law scholar, and I wrote a paper together where, where, where we looked at uh, single subject decisions by courts. And we found that there was an extremely large partisan effect on there. It's that Democratic-leaning courts tended to find single subject rule violations of Republican proposals and, 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 and conversely. And I think that's what we should expect if you see if you, if you ask judges to apply highly subjective rules, their biases, perhaps even unconscious, are going to come into play. So, so partly, I would say, is, is you don't want to have a lot of procedural rules in there that, that, that tempt people. You want to have, you want to have pretty, pretty bright lines. I think you want to have a general deference to, to the will of the people. I, I think some courts view, view themselves as, I think many judges understand that they, they occupy a particularly particular place in the democratic process and it, and they're not the lawmakers and, and therefore they need to be careful about that things. So partly they have to, they have to, they have to constrain themselves. Um, but I do think a lot of the violations you'll see are procedural types of violations. And some of that can be cleaned up by, by writing procedures that are, that are more clear. You know, don't, don't, don't put judges in the position of having to make subjective calls. Okay. Well, let's come back to uh, American democracy. One of the challenges that we've got, is that uh, the Constitution would have to get changed to make certain type of referendums allowed. But you actually explained some different things that can be done without making constitutional amendments um, and even efforts that have been done to try to do it. Tell us just a little bit about that and how we could actually do this without the whole constitutional amendment process kicking in. Yeah, it's, it's, you can probably tell I'm, I've been pushing back a little bit against initiatives because people always want to, when they talk about direct, direct democracy, they always want to talk about initiatives and that's, that's perfectly good. But, but I think that's kind of an extreme form that we're not ready for at the national level. Um, and I don't think it's, the, it's, where, it's where you start. Uh, you start with, with, with other things in particular, because you really have to amend the constitution to, to let people actually pass laws in, in this way. Um, and in fact, if you look at what a lot of other countries do, they, they will often have more advisory type of votes. We don't need a constitutional amendment to do an advisory vote. Uh, the Congress could easily go in there and say, you know, we, we've been arguing about immigration for many, many years. Um, 
we want to know what you guys want to do. Here's a couple of options. Do you want to spend more in, in secure, on more bo on border security or not? Do you want to provide a path for citizenship to people who are here or not? Let's take a vote on those issues. We're not bound by it. We just want to know what you guys think. They can do that right away. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. They can just pass a law and call an advisory vote. I think that's what many other countries do. It lets the people weigh in. I actually think it would break through some of the partisan gridlock because I think it's much harder for legislators to hide and do their partisan posturing if the majority of the voters say something clear. And I suspect that what we know from opinion polls is that most voters actually would like to have more border security and most voters would like to provide a path to citizenship for people who are in the country already. Well, okay. We already have opinion polls that give us some of that info. Um, can you kind of explain why a referendum would be more impactful or have a greater impact than a poll done by uh, Gallup or Ipsos or one of those other polling agencies? So the so polling is is great and that pollsters are very good at, at what they do. But the problem with a poll is you're asking you're asking people their reaction on sort of without hearing the arguments. The the the, the great virtue uh, it, it would be sort of like walking in and say. Uh, you know, who do you want to elect for your U.S. Senator X or Y before there's a campaign? Okay, you're going to get an answer, but you might get a very different answer after there's a campaign and people hear the arguments and they hear from people they trust, you know, and these might be interest groups. They might hear from the Sierra Club or they might hear from taxpayer groups or something. They're going to hear endorsements from newspapers and they're going to read online stuff. So after you hear all this and you hear the arguments, you come to a reasoned decision. Um, what you, if you just do a poll, you, you don't have a, you don't really have a reasoned decision from a lot of people. You're just, you're just getting their kind of gut level reaction to the basic issue. The virtue of taking an actual referendum is that everybody would, would run a campaign. Voters would hear the opinions and they would give a reasoned thing. And that would probably, I suspect, carry a lot more weight uh, with legislators and with actual decision makers because people would go, okay, this has been tested uh, and people are kind of, here's where people are. Obviously it's not black and white, uh, an advisory vote is kind of like a poll, but but I do think it is qualitatively different as well and more and more meaningful. Um, it's it's interesting that um, if you look at other countries that do advisory votes, they don't just do polls. They don't just say let's commission a poll. They say let's let's, let's actually take a vote. So I, I think votes also have a legitimizing uh, function in people's mind. Uh, people are, I think, willing to go along with with a policy even if they're the loser if they think it was done fairly in some way and people associate votes with fairness yeah I, I could also see how people are going to take it a little more seriously yeah, yeah. indefinitively yeah. when they when they have to go in and make a decision now i want to touch on one thing here i like look i, I didn't really get in much to the the common argument that hey people aren't smart enough to be able to to make decisions because I kind of think that if you're going to have representative democracy, people have to be smart enough to make some decisions. So I kind of think that's silly, but like, look, I do, I, especially with my background in business, I liked how you talked about the partly informed voters and tried to explain that. Can, can you just give a little bit of a background on what you mean by that and how voters can make informed decisions without having to do all the research necessary? 
another a, a really great question. And I just want to flag anybody who might be interested in this topic, who who's concerned about about uh, direct democracy. One one of the chapters that I really think is is one of the ones I like best, and I think is uh, I think will be most useful to people is a chapter on voter competence. And I really do go through because this is one of the most researched areas in political science, which is trying to examine are voters capable of making these decisions, and. And, and they really are. There's just overwhelming evidence that they that they they're not perfect, but they do they they do a reasonably good job. That seems puzzling to many people on the face of it, because if you actually we know that if you go actually ask voters detailed questions about candidates or about policies or about propositions, they they can't answer it very well. Uh, if you start quizzing them, well, okay, what does this law actually do? They're gonna they're gonna fail. When we have you know, 50 plus years of, of research showing that. So it seems a bit paradoxical that that the that kind of uninformed voters can actually cast votes that reflect their interests. But what we've learned is that they have a very, they have a very smart way of doing that. Uh, the technical term that political scientists like to use is the word of information cues or information shortcuts. But I think, you know, you and I might just say endorsements. Okay. And and the way it works is, is really simple. I'll just give a simple example is that suppose, suppose there's a proposition on the ballot that says, it's the forest preservation measure, okay? And the voter's trying to decide, should I vote yes or no on the forest preservation measure? I know the title. So the voter goes through this exercise. It says, he says, well, or she says, well, either this is maybe gonna protect forests or maybe it's something the timber industry put on there entitled it the forest protection measure that will actually allow them to cut down more trees. I, I, I don't know what it is. So there's kind of a civics, civics notion of the way that voters behave, which says, oh, they go and they actually read, they actually read the legislation and they determine what it's actually going to do. Uh, anybody who's actually tried to read, uh, to read an actual law will notice right away that's, it's, it's not going to work. And that's not what voters do. They're, they're actually too smart to do that. What do they do? Well, they ask an expert. They ask an expert they trust, what's this law going to do? And so, for example, if, if a person was an environmentalist, they care, what does the Sierra Club say? Okay, because Sierra Club has experts who can read that and they look at what the Sierra Club says and the Sierra Club says thumbs up, they vote yes, as it says thumbs down, they vote no. Conversely, if they if they want, if they're pro timber industry, they look at the timber industry's position on this. So there's plenty of evidence that people that people behave like this. And it's actually a very um, it's a very smart way. But but th in this way, people are actually voting their interests. They are actually voting correctly in terms of what their underlying values are, but they still going to fail if you quiz them uh, on the issue. And I, and I will just say, you know, one last thing is that people sometimes are uncomfortable with this, the notion that, well, yeah, you're voting your interest, but you don't exactly know what you're doing. And I would just say that, I would just say that we should be comfortable with this because that's the way kind of everything in the world works. So, uh, you know, legislators, they don't read everything that they vote on. Uh, President Trump or President Obama, they didn't read every line of text. Oh, oh, you know, President Obama didn't read every line of text uh, in Obamacare and think it through. Uh, they do the same thing that everybody else does. They ask trusted experts. And, and I would just say that even in our ordinary life, we, we go to our doctor and say, what drug should I take for my condition? We don't go read the medical studies and come back with detailed evidence about what it works. We trust experts to tell us what's the best thing. And we do quite well with that. So I would say that people have adopted in the voting booth a very efficient uh, mechanism, which is just like what they do in the rest of their life. They're going to buy a product. They go read consumer reports. They, they look for, for expert advice. This is a way, this is a very reasonable way. And, and the, the evidence shows this leads people to actually reflect their interests uh, with, with a high degree of, of, of probability. You, you know, I find it interesting because in business, um, if you're a manager, like a CEO, an executive that manages a lot of people, 
it's very likely that you're going to be in charge of people that do a job that you don't know how to do. And they're responsible for figuring out, hey, is this person doing a good job or not? And oftentimes, a person who starts a company, the first thing, first hire they should make is not a person that does their job, a person who does a job that they don't do. They've got to figure out how to do that. So this is not an unnatural thing for human beings to do. Um, and I think if people reflect, they'll realize they do it all the time. They, 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 very, <laughs> rarely get, they very rarely do independent research on things. Uh, but what we've kind of told people that the civics view that you have to do independent research on things. And that's not the way people, pe- the way that people make decisions. Democracy is, is about more than elections though. Like, and so one of the things that I'm str- that I struggle with when I try to decide, Hey, do I support direct democracy or should we be doing something more like representative democracy? I struggle because in direct democracy, it's difficult to have those delicate policy negotiations uh, from that include many different perspectives. That was the problem with Brexit we talked about. It, direct democracy can boil things down to a yes or no uh, decision. Can you kind of explain how we overcome this obstacle? Is it that we only vote on things that we trust there to be a yes or no decision? Or is this something that we work out those broader ideas and negotiations in a broader public space. So there's so so your question bl- blurs into some other issues which are out there as well with this this notion of compromise, this notion of of deliberation. Sometimes people express a concern. They said there's not deliberation in in direct democracy, but there is in legislatures. I think that's that's very that one. I don't think you can get very far because nobody thinks the Senate really debates things, uh, right? They 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 know what they're going to do. Um, I think the compromise point is also, I think often when people talk about, you know, well, yes or no is a blunt tool. It, it really is a blunt tool. It, it's not, I don't think, again, going back to the thing we started with, I don't think this is something we want to use on an operational basis for decision by decision all the time. This is, this is really, I think, for bright line things where we're hitting, where we're hitting some kind of big decision point. Should we spend more on border security? I think that's, that's kind of a pretty should should the the UK you know be part of EU or not? Those are those are there's there's details in there, I, but on the on the issue of compromise, it strikes me as sort of a theoretical point. But but I look at the U.S. Congress, uh, I don't see I don't see a body that is is exceptionally good at compromise. Um, I think most Americans look at our national government and say they don't compromise. I'm, it drives me crazy that they seem to be taking these extreme positions. Why can't they just do the sensible thing? in the middle because we opinion polls overwhelmingly show most Americans are in the middle on issues. They, they don't go to the extreme polls of the partisans on the, on the, so, so, so I, so I think to say, well, you know what, we just got to keep this in the legislature because they're the ones who can actually do compromises and we, the people cannot. I, I see the emotional appeal of that. I, when I look at the, at, at our national government, it doesn't resonate with, with me. I think the people actually are much better at striking middle grounds uh, and I actually believe if you put issues, if you put compromise issues to the voters that Congress is stuck on, I, you know, we, we t- I, I mentioned immigration a couple of times, but I really do think if you put a proposal on the ballot that says we're going to spend X percent more on border security and we're going to provide a path to to people who are here to illegally to stay. Do you guys want to do that? Well, our elected officials won't do that. They refuse. They refuse to do it. I, I'm convinced the voters would overwhelmingly pass that. They would bite on it right away. And I think there's a whole bunch of issues where we're we're gridlocked on partisanship that that, that we would get compromise through. The voters can force compromise on on onto the system. So so that's that's not a that's that, that, 
It's not a, a perfect answer. Uh, and, I, and I'm not trying, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want to go to ex extremes here. It is hard to negotiate when you're voting on an up or down issue. I, I do think that a lot of negotiation also is on the implementation side of things. So, so I would say direct democracy is better to make, it's better to resolve broad conceptual value-based issues, not to make details of, of, of regulations. Um, so I would, I would tend to do that. But, but my overarching sense is that I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure there is a lot of negotiation or compromise going on in, in, at the national level. In, in, and I think the voters would actually choose, I think they would choose more moderate, more centrist positions if, if left, to, left to themselves is my intuition. I'd like to, like to at least put it to the test, give, give them a chance. Well, I think that's a good point to end on. You really kind of brought together some of these ideas about direct democracy, the way that it can be able to help people move forward, whether whether anybody, I mean, whether a person believes in it or not, it definitely gives us a lot to be able to think about. So thank you so much for joining. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, been a great conversation. Great. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank James Schneider at Princeton University Press, who provided a copy of Let the People Rule and put me in touch with John. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www www.democracyparadox.com Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.